Welcome to BIB Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, we take a look at the province's vision for clean growth in BC. And up first, whether we'll see a NAFTA deal this week and what happens if we don't. There's a wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies that are making payments and transactions easier for businesses now. On September 13th, BIV's FinTech panel will look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Join us for it. And tickets and information are available now at BIV.com slash events. Canada is now back at the NAFTA negotiating table with a deadline fast approaching. The White House has threatened to impose auto tariffs on Canadian exports if a trilateral deal isn't reached by Friday. The U.S. has also said it will move forward with its U.S.-Mexico deal and leave Canada behind. That said, our next guest has some thoughts about how U.S. Congress might react to that one. Carlo Dade is the director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Calgary-based Canada West Foundation. Good to have you back on the show. Hey, always a pleasure to be here. And uh, remember, we cover B.C. through to Manitoba at the Canada West Foundation, even though we're based in Calgary. Yeah, absolutely. We're not going to hold it against you. Um, and the, the uh, how much, how much of how serious do you think the prospect is of Canada not getting into a deal? Well, Canada not getting into a deal should, according to U.S. legislation and the way trade authority is delegated, et cetera, et cetera, should mean that there is no deal. Mm-hmm. So to take a step back, you know, as we've discussed previously on the show. In the U.S., according to the Constitution, trade is a, a subject for Congress. The Constitution mandates that Congress alone have control over trade, including tariffs and other issues. Congress cedes this power to the president in order for the president to negotiate agreements. But when Congress does that, they put very specific conditions on what the president must do when he negotiates, what he can negotiate, and the objectives. The president's then able to take those outlines and negotiate the details. Congress gave the president authority to negotiate a trilateral agreement, a renegotiation of the NAFTA agreement. It did not, and I've got the letters, uh, I've read through them a couple of times, it did not in any way, shape, or form grant the president authority to come out with a bilateral agreement. There's no way you can read this letter that where the Congress gives power to the tells the president what to do in the NAFTA negotiations and come away with his being able to produce a bilateral result. And you've already started to see senators from Sherrod Brown on the Democrat side to Ryan Hatch on the Republican side, Ron Wyden, the ranking member of the Senate committee that deals with trade negotiations, all say non-starter. Um, it's a trilateral deal. So I don't think that we're going to um, we're going to the president's going to be able to get Congress to agree to a bilateral deal. He may be able to try and present it to them, and there'll be some senators who will go along with them. But I think the majority in both houses will say no. So, taking that fact, does this then give Canada some leverage in these discussions this week? I wouldn't want to try and use something like this for leverage. Um, you know, we have an opportunity because of the progress that the Mexicans have made on resolving some of the bilateral issues and also some of the larger issues to actually close a deal. Um, It now forces 
attention, forces minds to focus on the key issues. And for us, you know, dispute resolution, um, the issue around supply management, are, um, it's going to force a, a, a solution or resolution of those issues. This actually may be favorable to our government. If you think about this, you know, the government is saying, even today, we will not give in anything on supply management. That's the perfect position if you have a constituency in Canada that will supposedly hang you from the rafters if you make any concessions. You say you're not going to make concessions. You go into the negotiations with the Americans mad at you for not agreeing to make concessions. And at the end of the day, you make concessions. Mm -hmm. This gives you the political cover in Canada to say you were forced. You yeah. had no choice. It was the last issue. You know, we never would have done this. We said we weren't going to do this, but by golly, you know, it was the last thing. And, well, we really had no choice. And I think this actually plays well for the government. It's uh, difficult, of course, to really assess what this deal looks like because there still are details that uh, that we haven't seen yet. But it doesn't appear to be a radical overhaul by any means of our trading relationships as a continent. Does that also help Canada in the sense that we're really not uh, into a space where we have to argue all over again uh, at the last minute to preserve some things that we consider to be um, really almost uh, uh, the sanctity of a trade deal like this? You know, a great point. You know, we went through this debate, a debate that the Americans appear to be going through about whether or not to liberalize trade is something they want to they want to pursue. So we've gone through that debate, and you know, the lack of a radical change in this agreement um, it is a great point. Yeah, it enables us to proceed more easily. You'll also note that a lot of the changes. So NAFTA is twenty some years old. The internet was five days old when NAFTA was signed. <laughs> so a lot of the things that have been updated are things that most people would say, yeah, that makes common sense, or we've learned from mistakes, or for those who really pay attention to trade issues, you know, didn't we just discuss this like two years ago in this country? Oh, yeah, we did, the TPP. And you look at the things that have been added to NAFTA, and they're pretty much provisions on biologics, on copyright, and other things um, on the internet, e-commerce, things that were negotiated in the TPP. And we've already come to resolution to that in this country. But you know what's missing from this agreement? And what I'm surprised I haven't heard the government yelling and screaming about as a, you know, we must have this or we won't go ahead, progressive trade. Right. The the uh, the issues that uh, the government wanted around uh, gender and indigeneity, right? It well, they bit more than wanted. I think the government, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, said that these were you know absolute must-haves. If mm -hmm. we don't get them, they're non-starters. All future trade agreements must have these. So you can imagine the Chinese are looking at this, stroking their chins and saying, "Huh." Really, push comes to shove, and the progressive trade really was just a cheap domestic political stunt for the liberal base. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't serious. Hmm. Were those points that were a part of progressive trade, were they sticking points for the United States? Well, you know, they weren't just sticking points for the Americans. Uh, I don't think the Americans really took them seriously. Uh, there was never going to be an indigenous chapter. Gender, they dealt with through the Presidential Commission on Women CEOs, which is actually produce some very interesting proposals to actually help women uh, participate in trade and, and to advance uh, gender issues uh, in, in, in private sector. Um, so I don't think it was ever um, 
that that serious um, on, on the table um, for this. And it's not just the Americans; it's the Mexicans. You know, as we've talked about before the incoming Mexican administration, the populist left wing incoming Mexican administration has said point blank that social elements or progressive elements do not belong in trade agreements. So it was both our NAFTA partners telling us no on the, uh, on the, progress, on the progressive trade deal. It, am I correct to assume that Donald Trump is actually um, a sudden benefactor of uh, Mexican labor, that, that uh, suddenly you have to be earning $16 an hour um, in, in Mexico? <laughs> well, this is the theory. The issue with the auto agreement is the practice. So, yes, okay, a certain percentage of content must be, or cars or content or parts, must be made by workers earning a certain amount. How do you figure that out when you have so many parts going into cars, and some cars in Mexico are going for the Latin American market, some are coming up here? How do you actually trace each worker on each part and figure out the hourly wage or do you do an average or do you audit the plant or do the plants report themselves so the devil in this one is going to be in the details and i'm kind of scratching my head trying to figure out um how you would how you would do this and if you can do it what's that going to add to the cost and the friction if you've got to file paperwork, if you've got to keep track of workers, you know, this really needs a deep think. Uh, the idea sounds good, but when you actually try and run it through a real world scenario, you start uh, hitting things that have you scratching your head. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Expanding on that overall, Carlo, what do you think this U.S.-Mexico deal means for Mexico? What do they get out of it? So the deal is actually a, it's not a deal, it's an agreement in principle on certain outstanding negotiating points in the trilateral NAFTA agreement. That's a mouthful, but deal is nice shorthand and the president used it, but this is not uh, what the US and Mexico have is basically an agreement on several of the outstanding points. So for the Mexicans, you know, they get to move closer ahead to um, getting rid of the uncertainty of not having NAFTA and the damage that it's done to Mexico. But I think in a few months after this, or even a few weeks after this, folks are gonna realize that, wait a minute, the steel and aluminum tariffs haven't disappeared. The Americans are still holding hearings and doing an investigation on whether autos constitute, the lack of production of autos in the U.S. constitute a threat to U.S. national security, to spell it out legally and correctly. Um, that's still going on, and the president will still be looking at other unilateral trade measures that he can take under uh, various U.S. Um, trade authority acts, the 64 Act, the 70 Act in the 1970s. And so we're still going to see these things coming through. So I think you could see a bit of blowback in Mexico because the steel and aluminum tariffs have simply been converted to quotas. They haven't been taken away after the agreement. And you're still going to have President Trump, I think, deciding idiosyncratically to impose tariffs across the board. Yeah, he's, going to, he's not going to stop banging the drum. It's very apparent now, right, that, that even in, in saying that NAFTA was a terrible deal for America, worst trade deal of all time, uh, he's, he's really just touched it up a little bit here and there. There's nothing really radical in that. Is this a, um, is, is this a reflection on um, when his, his bluster meets the real world? I 
don't think his bluster has yet really met the real world. And we're starting to see bits and pieces of this. So with the imposition of steel and aluminum tariffs, the damage that was done both to users, industries and businesses that use aluminum steel in the U.S., the impact on jobs, the impact on the farm sector, the agricultural sector, and I expected more of a blowback. And again, if you go back in U.S. history, when George Bush did this in advance of midterm elections, there was immediate blowback and the Americans, the Bush administration, rolled back their steel tariffs um, very quickly. But we're not seeing that this time. We're seeing, you know, Trump's base saying, yes, we're suffering. Yes, we're hurting, but we're going to have to make a sacrifice. Um, and, you know, there's, got, there's going to be some pain, but we're going to win at the end. So I think. The hitting, the rubber hitting the road or the, the reality test <clears throat> is going to be a little further down the road than most of us first thought. I don't know how long, but eventually the damage from the tariffs and the trade blowback you would expect would have people changing course. Under George Bush, it happened very quickly. Now it's really doesn't appear to be happening. Um, so, yeah, we're living in a new world. Do you think we see a trilateral agreement this week, Carlo? You know, we can. Um, if the, our government, not just our government, but the opposition too, uh, can make a decision on supply management, can make concessions, uh, I, and we can get some tweaking of the investor state dispute, I think we could. Um, but again, you know, it's supply management. The government's always known that we would have to make concessions again, let me say again, to the Americans on supply management and access to the Canadian market. We made concessions to the Americans under the TPP. The Americans walked away. Those concessions are still in the TPP should the Americans come back in. And you know, we made concessions for liquid milk. So you know, the Australians aren't going to ship us liquid milk, uh, neither the Japanese or, or the Chileans. That was for the Americans. So we've already made concessions. We could make similar concessions. But I think the Trump administration is going to want a hell of a lot more, pardon my French, but uh, that's how serious I think they are about this. I also think that you know Donald Trump's no fan of Justin Trudeau, and if there's a chance to stick it to him on um, supply management, he's going to take it. So it's going to be tough, but yeah. the government's going to have to decide, do they want to do what's right for Canadians? Do they want to do what's right for the other agriculture sectors in this country that export abroad to earn a living? Um, and you know the eyes of Mexico are also looking on and say, we got all the hard issues solved. It's up to you and supply management. So there's real pressure on the government, but there's also pressure on the conservatives not to use this as a cheap election ploy in Quebec. And um, I think there would really have to be some agreement that the conservatives and Andrew Scheer will knock it off uh, with criticizing the government if they do make a concession on supply management to save NAFTA. So last point on this, uh, Ontarians now have their uh, buck of beer. Are we going to have a, a, a buck a liter of milk? <laughs> if, if, if we did, there'd be a run on milk. There'd be Americans crossing the border to come up to Canada to buy milk instead okay, of what well, you see in BC. Okay, okay so, down. so it'd be like a buck a half liter or something like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know my milk price. It's expensive. Yeah. It's pretty expensive. It is expensive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Carlo, as always, great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us with your thoughts. Hey, my pleasure. That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Canada West Foundation. Mm-hmm. 
BC wants to be a clean energy and climate action leader, and the government recently called on the public, on organizations, and on experts to weigh in on its roadmap for getting there. BC's clean growth strategy is expected this fall. The Surrey Board of Trade was one group that gave input on the government's intention papers, and CEO Anita Huberman joins us now to discuss what's needed to get us there. Anita, good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Let's start with this. What is a clean growth future? What does that involve? Well, uh, clean growth future is about making sure that uh, we focus on the environment that we live in and uh, making sure that uh, we are looking at polluting waste, uh, the consumption of fossil fuels, and how we're consuming that non-renewable energy, but really tying it to economic development uh, for the province. Uh, there's a lot of buzzwords when it comes to clean growth, you know, low carbon, low energy, but these intention papers that the BC government has been looking for feedback on is meant to really make sure that people understand that there's a, an economic lens to a clean growth future with a focus on the environment. The um, the elephant that always seems to be in the room uh, in British Columbia with uh, with this discussion is LNG, Anita, and and I wonder uh, what is it that you think you're is is the reading now about um, but how you pursue a strategy like this with LNG still out there as a bit of an unresolved issue. Well, the what I'm hearing is the LNG industry is still possible. It's been delayed. We've been late in the game. Uh, as a province, as a nation, even, and um, and really, you know, what we're trying to do is, in the advent of a, a resurgence or an emergence of LNG, we're we're trying to still focus on. Uh, clean growth strategies for other industry sectors, whether it's transportation, heavy industry, building, development, uh, zero waste usage, um, you know, everything has to be done together, uh, but we can't uh, be left out of the LNG game, and uh, sometimes it looks like we're, we have been left out of that game. Yeah, is there any indication, either based on the intention papers or based on what you've heard in discussions with government about how LNG is going to fit into this very comprehensive, holistic economic strategy? I have not heard anything at this time. What would you say are the um, the needs with any kind of a strategy of this sort, Anita? And, and how specifically do you think that a community can um, can contribute or participate in a strategy on its own? Well, the city of Surrey, they've been a leader in terms of uh, sustainable economic strategies, uh, clean energy, district clean en energy strategies for our downtown core. And uh, But it, it takes all of us working together uh, to make sure that uh, BC is acting as a leader in the clean economy, reducing our emission sources, reusing our waste uh, through innovative mechanisms, and working with industry. You know, it's, it's not going to only happen by the city of Surrey. It has to happen in conjunction with business. And uh, and that's the challenge in itself is because people don't understand that when you focus on the environment, there still will be a benefit to the bottom line. Uh, perhaps you may not see it in the short term, you may see it in the long term. Mm -hmm. 
What kinds of things do you think need to be in place to get us from a strategy and a vision to meaningful action on clean growth? Well, again, it's all about messaging and education and working with with industry. I mean, industry is busy making their products, selling their service, dealing with clients. It has to be easy uh, for government to navigate through. It just can't be some type of strategy in print. It can't only be about incentives and rebates for businesses. It there there has to be, and I don't have the answer. It it really needs to be um, a specific um, short term, medium term, long term uh, results oriented strategy. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, with, when we're talking about the environment or sustainability, it's, it's, it's always challenging. How do you get it down to make it meaningful? Yeah. You know, in running the board of trade there in Surrey, Anita, I wonder whether you'd comment about how you've seen a kind of an evolution of the business community and its, uh, approaches and even its attitudes toward a clean growth strategy have, have, have they been won over in a lot of ways now? It's definitely transitioned. I mean, uh, I've been here as CEO for 12 years uh, with the Board of Trade for 25, and and we, we host an Environment Awards uh, event as well, recognizing small, medium, large businesses on the various means by which they're reducing energy consumption. Uh, and, um, and, and some people are doing it in small ways and some mm-hmm. people are doing it in larger ways. I, I think people have bought into it. Canadians have bought into it uh, because if we don't, we're going to compromise our future generations, our future um, livable, livability of our cities. Uh, so I think uh, in Surrey, you know, we've bought into it. I think even generally um, within Metro Vancouver, we've bought into it. Mm-hmm. We've talked to you many times about transportation issues in the region, and Metro Vancouver is going to be getting some massive investments in transportation. How is that going to fit into this clean growth strategy the government's proposing? Well, that is a very good question. I mean, when we're motivating people to buy electric or convert to electric, um, the infrastructure that's needed for that within the region, for example, uh, is quite significant. And, um, you know, I, I think when we're talking about major roadway improvements and we're talking about light rail transit here, uh, people focused more on getting out of their cars into transit, but it has to be efficient. It has to be uh, easy to get to. And I think that's not going to happen right away. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's you're you're starting to see it. Um, you know, we uh, were in Vancouver, for example, last weekend, and there's car share there, not ride share, but car share. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I think you know you're seeing the the pathway towards um, uh, people focusing on the transportation sector from an environmental lens. Yeah, because of the really the the rampant growth of Surrey over the last two decades, um, has the city had, do you think, an opportunity to frankly do it a little bit better than a lot of other cities that have not grown at the same clip? Well, definitely we've had the advantage of uh, being that big city, having those resources to uh, be leaders and, and, a, and with a focus and um 
and and also staff at the city of Surrey that are accountable to delivering this strategy. And it, it's called a sustainability charter, and it's not only focused on an environmental lens, it's focused on economic development, it's focused on how we build out the city. Uh, so we, you know, we've won awards uh, for our sustainability charter uh, through UBCM, FCM, and, and all of these uh, types of conferences. But uh, definitely, you know, we, we have been recognized as doing some very innovative leadership-oriented work in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, progress has been made, no doubt. And research shows us, interestingly, Canada, even though we have quite a bit of innovation, we do tend to sometimes fall behind other countries, at least on the private sector side of things. What role do you think municipal and provincial governments can play at maybe fostering greater innovation and private sector innovation tied to, say, climate action and clean tech and clean energy? Well, you're very correct in saying that we're lagging behind uh, as a nation in terms of innovation and productivity at all levels. It's, It's a concern for the business community. Uh, one of the things that we've been doing uh, with the federal government is looking at ways to provide incentives um, to small businesses uh, in um, in the tech sector, uh, in the healthcare sector, in the manufacturing sector, so that they're not only focused on their business today, but their business tomorrow, the technology they need, the innovation, the commercialization of new products. Uh, because if we don't focus on that, uh, then we are really falling behind in the whole global economy. So uh, there are some things uh, that are expected to be announced uh, this fall, next spring, you know, with the federal election. But, um, you know, we, we absolutely as a nation need to focus on innovation and productivity in the, the clean growth or clean economy sector. Do you think people have gotten past the, um, the old myth that you had to make a choice between um, a vibrant economy and a vibrant environment? For the most part, yes. I think also if uh, you are, you know, it, it depends also where you are on the income scale. Mm. Uh, you know, if you are, are, you know, just trying to survive, uh, you know, in the affordability crisis that we have here uh, in BC or in the Lower Mainland more specifically, I, I, you know, I think it's less of a priority. But I think for the most part, as I mentioned, there's been this transition, this mindset. Um, and uh, even with the, um, the generations that, you know, threw everything in the garbage, um, you know, I think, uh, the, you know, our city, for example, all cities, um, forcing us to source separate, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's organics or garbage or, 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 or whatever. You know, I think that's been helpful as well. Not everyone is doing it, um, but I think that um, behavior has shifted. It's not perfect, um, but it's shifted. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Anita, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's Anita Huberman, CEO at the Surrey Board of Trade. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and, of course, at BIV.com where you're going to find much more business news. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.